Hello and welcome to the Double Double. My name is David Dixon and it is Monday, May 25th here in New York City. Hope everyone is doing well, staying safe and healthy uh, as we continue to uh, battle the, the coronavirus pandemic. Coming up today on the podcast is an interview I recorded on Memorial Day uh, with the head men's battle coach at RPI, Mark Gilbride. Uh, RPI was coming off a great 2019-2020 season. They've been building steadily over the last few years. Coach Gilbride has a really interesting uh, family background, and it was a really good interview, and I hope you guys enjoy it. Uh, first, as usual, uh, recommendation corner. Uh, here this week, uh, again, I, I, you know, reading a lot, uh, watching a lot. One thing I'm reading now is a book by Robert Etzel. It's called The Monuments Men. Uh, I think a lot of people know it from the major motion picture movie that, that was made out of it, but it's basically the story of this select group of uh, people during World War II who went around Europe uh, during the Allied invasion and uh, victory in Europe and went around trying to preserve and save the art and different cultural sites during the war and kind of recover the artwork that Adolf Hitler and the Germans had plundered and stolen from uh, the various countries that they had invaded in the war. Uh, it's really good so far. I'm enjoying it. Uh, so that's a book. And then and then for a TV show, um, I've been really enjoying uh, Billions again. Uh, this season that's been really good but uh, the Lance Armstrong doc documentary this past Sunday ESPN is doing a great thing Lance is a really interesting guy the the filmmaker uh, directed one of my favorite uh, 30 for 30s before which was the one fantastic lies about the Duke lacrosse team and, and that whole situation so if you're looking for another 30 for 30 if you enjoyed the last dance I highly recommend checking out uh, Lance it's on ESPN. There's a two-parter, so the first part aired this past Sunday. Part two is airing this upcoming Sunday. I highly recommend that. Uh, so check that out if you're looking for another uh, sports documentary to watch. So I'm going to hit the music, and when we come back, it's my interview from uh, this past Monday, Memorial Day, with the head men's basketball coach at RPI, Mark Gilbride. Joining me today on the Double Double is the head men's basketball coach at RPI, Mark Gilbride. He played his college ball at Bowdoin College in the NESCAC for his father, Tim, and continued at the school as an assistant coach for three seasons. In the summer of 2006, he joined the staff at Amherst College and helped the team to the 2007 National Championship. He then coached at Stonehill College and Yale University for one season each before being named the head coach at Clarkson University in the summer of 2009. In his five years at Clarkson, Coach Gilbride went 75-51, and 51, including three straight winning seasons in the Liberty League, the first time Clarkson achieved such a feat in school history. He was named the head coach at RPI in the fall of 2014 and has had a winning record each of the last four years. The 2019-2020 season was arguably the best in school history as the team went 24-5, and five, including 17-1 in conference, made the second round of the NCAA tournament, and the team boasted both the conference and defensive players of the year. 
I'm thrilled he's taking the time to join me today. Coach, how's it going? Good, David. Thanks for having me. I'm uh, happy to do this. Of course, I appreciate all the time. So let's kind of go back to the beginning and just what was it like growing up with the dad who was a, a college basketball coach? It was a lot of fun. Uh, I grew up in and around the Bowdoin College campus and uh, obviously some, some great role models with all the great students and, and great athletes at, at Bowdoin to, to watch. Um, and, uh, and the campus was almost like my, my playground. I got to uh, uh, shoot baskets in the gym and, and play soccer on the soccer fields. And uh, uh, it, was, it was just a, a really, really fun place to be and a, and a fun place to grow up. And, uh, so it was uh, my actually my first uh, there was a, a point guard at, at Bowdoin, Dennis Jacoby, who was a great point guard when I was a, a younger kid. And that was uh, who I wanted to grow up and be like. Uh, and so awesome. it, was, uh, it was fun to eventually play at Bowdoin and, uh, and kind of get to experience it that after having that, that, that dream as a little kid. Yeah. So kind of in high school. Were you a multi-sport athlete? Did you just stick to basketball? And kind of just what was your overall recruiting process like? Um, so for me, I, I played soccer and basketball in okay. high school, um, but I knew basketball was was what I wanted to, to try to do in college. Um, and uh, I looked uh, at a bunch of schools. I actually went to the University of Chicago my, my freshman year okay. and, then, uh, and then transferred uh, – transferred to Bowdoin from Chicago. Um, and so, uh, you know, I didn't even really look at Bowdoin. I wanted to go away from home and experience something else. And then after a year away, and I, I loved Chicago, but after a year away, it was uh, the opportunity to get to, to play for, for my father and uh, just was something I, I, I couldn't pass up. And so uh, that's kind of how that, how that went. Gotcha. Well, you went from one great school to another. And, and, and in choosing Bowdoin, as you mentioned, you, you got to play for your dad. A few years back, Doug McDermott wrote a article or a short essay in the Player Tribune about his experience playing for his father, Greg, at Creighton. And in the piece, he kind of talks about some of the challenges and the quirks of playing for his dad, such as sometimes not immediately going into the locker room after a tough practice to hear his teammates complain about his dad, uh, asking his dad for money in his office when he wanted to go to the movies or to fill up his car with gas, or doing what a lot of college kids do, which is send his laundry home and uh, have to go pick up his his laundry from his dad's office, which he sometimes delayed after a tough practice or a game. What was the overall experience like for you playing for your dad in college, and, and just what were some of the unique challenges that that, that kind of presented? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. I'm glad to hear that uh, Doug McDermott had some ups and downs with that too, with, with <laughs> as great a player he is. <laughs> but, um, you know, it's it, it's awesome. I'm so glad that I did it, but it, it, it has its moments where um, – you know, you want to you want to fit in with the team, and so you, uh, you don't want don't want your teammates worried that you know if, if they say something around you, it's going to get back to your father. You know, it, yeah. the, the whole thing is just um, it's it's a it's a little bit of a delicate balance, I guess, is what I would say. And you're trying to figure that out as a, um, you know, as a sophomore in college. And, uh, I thought as my college career went along, I was able to figure out how to do that better and better. Um, and so it, uh, it, that was part of the, 
maturing process, just like everyone goes through part through a maturing process in college. And for me, that was just another element of it. Um, gotcha. But I'm in the end, I'm just I'm so glad that I did it. Yeah. Um, and uh, it kind of created a special uh, shared memories with with my father that uh, you know that I, that that I I wouldn't give up uh, for anything, uh, even though there were moments where it was difficult. That's great. So for those who who don't know, Coach. Bowdoin is an elite liberal arts college in in Maine. You you started at the University of Chicago, as you said. Just how did you go about balancing the super rigorous academics at Chicago and then at Bowdoin with uh, with playing high level collegiate basketball? You know, so many people are are able to do that, right? I think you just just you have to work hard at both and care about both, and uh, I think that. it can be it can be done and you can you can thrive at both things and you can still have time for to explore other things as well um like like you you know Mm -hmm. uh, being able to uh to play and to go to a great school like wesleyan and then also start this podcast right Uh, so um it it can all be done uh it just uh, got good time management and you have to if you really care about it then you'll then you'll put in the time and you'll do it and you do it because you love it so uh you know i think that's one of the really uh, fun things about going to a, a Division three school and a and a great academic school is you, you get the opportunity to, to experience all those things. Great, for sure. Really passionate about basketball and work really hard at it. Um, but also do really well in school and also you know maybe explore some other some other activities as well. For sure. So you graduated from Bowdoin in the spring of two thousand two, and you didn't really go too far from from Bowdoin for your first job post-graduation as you ended up becoming an, an assistant coach with your dad at, at Bowdoin. Just what was that experience like, not only transitioning from playing to coaching, but also uh, working on a staff with with your dad? Yeah, it was great. Um, so, you know, as a, as a coach, it, 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 there was none of the... You know, like we talked about as a, as a player, sometimes it was a, d- a delicate balance and you're trying to figure all that out. As an assistant coach, it was just all positive. Mm-hmm. Um, it was it was a lot of fun. It was fun trying to, um, you know, this program that I had seen my whole life and then had played in now as a coach to try to help the program keep getting better and better um, was uh was a lot of fun. It was fun working with, working with my father in that way. So, uh, that was awesome. And, uh, yeah, really enjoyed my, my three years as an assistant at Bowdoin. So in the summer of 2006, you, you leave Bowdoin and go to a conference rival in Amherst, which is one of the premier programs in all of division three basketball. Their longtime head coach, Dave Hickson recently retired this spring after over 40 years at the helm at Amherst. Just what was it like to be on the staff with a legendary coach like like Coach Hickson? It was a lot of fun. Um, he's a, he's a great great coach. You know, I learned a lot from him. Um, uh, recruiting and, and coaching and and, and everything. Um, and I think, you know, maybe what he, he does best is is bring people together. I was thinking of this uh, story the other day because they were doing a, re- a retirement video for coach Hickson. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so a lot of us that had, uh, worked there or, or people that had played for him, um, did like little, little 45 second, uh, clips just thanking him. And I, I, I thought back to my first day coming in as an assistant coach to, uh, uh, to, to work for him. And I was excited. It's, uh, you know, a, a 
great coach, great program. I wanted to work hard, make a good impression. Um, so I'm all fired up for the first day and I, I get into the office and there's coach Hickson and he's got a, a giant bag of peanuts, um, <laughs> in the middle of the office and he's cracking open the shells and he's eating the peanuts and he's, he's throwing the, the, the shells in the trash. And he said, you know, it was really important that, uh, the bag of peanuts stayed stayed full all year long <laughs> and uh <laughs> that was an important part of my job and i thought well, that's kind of funny uh but uh as the days went along people would stop by and, and crack open some shells and eat some peanuts and they'd sit and they'd talk and so student athletes would come by and sit uh-huh. in the office and talk other coaches from the department people from you know other departments across campus alumni if they were in town would, would stop by and sit in and talk and so it was uh what I realized was the peanuts were really a way to bring people together. And, right. uh, you know, Coach Hickson did a, did a great job of that. Um, and, uh, and he did it for 42 years. And so he made it a lot of fun, I guess for is sure. what I'm trying to say. For and sure. so, uh, that, that was, a, a something I really enjoyed. Well, it's always more fun when, when, when the team is winning and that team that you were a part of was one for the ages at Amherst is going 30 and two and winning the 2007 national championship. Just what was it like to be, on a team going on a, on a magical run like that? I mean, it's great. Uh, I was, you know, the, the, the winds are, winds are really fun and, uh, great, you know, great crowds. And, uh, it's, it's almost a weird feeling because usually when you're part of a successful team, um, you, you, you get into a playoff of some kind right? and no matter how good your season is and it, it, it ends with a loss. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, so it, it's kind of a funny feeling when uh, the, the last game happens and you're like, wow, wow, we really did it. That was it. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, so it was, it, was, it was great, though. That was a, a really good, you know, a, a very talented group of players and a really good group of people. And um, so it was, uh, you know, I think as a coach, you're more just enjoying um, their success and, right. and, and the player's enjoyment. And so um, watching, watching them uh, have that was, uh, was a lot of fun. For sure. So after so after that year at Amherst, you you do one year at Stonehill College before joining the coaching staff at Yale University. So while the Ivy League does not have athletic scholarships for their student athletes, they are a Division One program, and the Ivy League as a whole, as my dad loves to to mention me every time we watch an Ivy League game, it just has gotten better and better and better over the last twenty or or so years. When you guys would try and identify players to recruit. How does it really work when you guys can't give out an athletic scholarship and those high school athletes are uh, receiving full scholarship offers from from other programs? Yeah, it, it's it's difficult. Um, you know, there's there's some difficulties in recruiting at Yale. Um, there's also some real advantages. I mean, it is you know one of the top schools in the world. Yeah. And, uh, and has that level of, of, of reputation where, uh, you know, if, if you get recruited by Yale, that's something that, that a student athlete and a, and a family needs to really stop and think about, like, are we going to pass this up? Right. Um, and so I think there's some, like everywhere, there's, there's some things that are real challenges. You don't have scholarships and other schools you're competing against do, um, but, and obviously the admissions requirements are, are hard. So that's a big challenge um, mm-hmm. at Yale is, is, can you find great basketball players that also are great students and can meet that academic challenge? Um, but you also can, there's a lot of people that want to go to Yale. Yeah. Uh, so uh, there's some real advantages in recruiting. Right. And uh, so, but uh, yeah, it, it was, it, it, it was a lot of fun. Um, and 
and uh, we, we, you know, we played uh, we played Stanford that year um, uh, at home. Uh, that was a, a really fun game. We played uh, uh, at Oregon State, uh, and so we played. Uh, you, you play in some big time games, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and then obviously the Ivy League battles are are, are great sure. and, and super competitive. But yeah, that program has, has been unbelievable. Uh, James Jones is a is a great coach, and uh, we finished second in the Ivy League when I was there. Um, but they they've gone on to do unbelievable things i mean several ivy league titles and advancing the ncaa tournament and so it's been a lot of fun it's a it's a good group of people there on the coaching staff and uh so i'm so happy to see uh see all their success for sure and and, you know i personally feel that even though the ivy league has gotten much much better to the point where they're not only making the ncaa tournament but they're challenging the teams and winning games not just in the first round but even in in the second round that there's still kind of this stigma around ivy league basketball and ivy league players as their low major instead of where i think they are which is firmly in the mid-major tier just can for the listeners who don't know can, can you just try to briefly explain kind of how good you have to be to play in the ivy league yeah, I think you're exactly right. You know, the, especially for the teams that are winning the Ivy League, uh, those players are are really good. Um, Yale's had players that are getting drafted into the NBA. Yeah, um, and so you're, you're you're talking about really top level top level basketball players, and uh, and that's what it takes to to try to win the Ivy League right now. Um, and so it's uh, like everywhere the, com- the, the recruiting keeps getting more and more competitive all the time. And uh, the level of player that it takes to be successful uh, keeps getting higher. And so uh, it's uh, it's been impressive, the the run that, that Yale has had. Mm-hmm. And, and, yeah, you have to be a really good player <laughs> to play there. <laughs> so after one year at Yale, you become the head coach at Clarkson University in the fall of 2009. In Division Three. Teams are not allowed to have coach-led practices or workouts uh, during the offseason. So as someone who has just took over uh, a program, what are some things that you try to do to build a relationship or a culture with the players on the team without the advantage of you know being able to have like the eight hours of practice time in the offseason as you would be in a, in a, in a, in a Division I uh, program? Yeah, that's a, that's a great, great question because that, that I think that is one of the challenges uh, in Division Three is you want to you want to build these relationships, you want to help uh, student athletes in a, in a number of ways, uh, and and yet the rules restrict you in certain ways from being able to uh, to do that right away or be able to do that certain times a year. Um, one of the things that that I that I found to be really effective are academic meetings, mm-hmm. and you know we don't we don't talk about basketball, but. Uh, you know, something we do is we have like an academic notebook. And so we get everybody's comes in with their, uh, their syllabus, a copy of their syllabus from each class and their, and their schedule. And so particularly I'll do that with the first year students. Uh, but also in my first year, I've had, I have more meetings, even with the returning students where we, we go through all their classes, you know, okay, you have an exam coming up in this class. What are you doing to prepare for it? And then the next week, how did it go? went well great keep it up if it didn't go well what do you think to just not study enough to see the professor in their office hours would you like tutoring in that class you know whatever the situation may be yeah um but that's also just a nice time that, that 
for uh, the student athletes and I to continue to get to know each other. Gotcha. Uh, so I can check on and you know, especially again with first year students, can I check in on them with how it's going with adjustment to college and living in the dorms and kind of all that stuff. Um, and so I think, you know, at the beginning of my time at Clarkson, I think those meetings were, were really important sure. um, so that uh, so that I'm getting getting to know the student athletes. And then the other thing is just to watch a lot of film. So mm. you start to get to know them as players. Um, and so while you, while you can't coach them or instruct them yet, you can start to watch and get a feel for, okay, this is, this is how I think this person can improve. Um, and so when, when we get to uh, October 15th, which was the, which was the start date at, at Clarkson, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm ready to go with, with some ideas of how I might be able to help them. For sure. So that, that all sounds great. And I'm always curious about this coach, but the, but the term culture right now in terms of sport is like one of the buzzwords that everyone uses all the time. And it sometimes feel like everyone is just using it because everyone else is, is using it. <laughs> uh, and, but, but one of the things that they say is that in order for teams to really maximize success is that the guys on the team and the players and everyone involved has to you know, buy into to whatever the culture of the team is. And I'm always just just curious, as from a coach's perspective, what are some of the things you look for or what are the signs that the guys on the team are buying in? Because because a lot of times, even though with the best efforts, you, you're not going to win every single game. But just what are the signs that you look for that, hey, guys are buying into the culture that, that we're trying to build? Yeah, that's a great question. And I, I don't disagree with you. I, I think the, the word culture kind of gets overused right now or almost over mystified. Right. Yeah. Like the, and uh, to me, it, it's, it's fairly simple. You, you want everyone working hard um, and acting the right way. And uh, if they're doing those things, then then your culture is in pretty good shape. And if, if it's if they're, if they're not, then you got to keep working at it to try to figure out to get everybody to to be working hard and to be whatever you consider acting the right way is. So, right. you know, being positive with each other, um, you know, being well-mannered, representing the school well, representing your team well. And, and so that's, you know, that, that's kind of the stuff that you want. Um, so I'm always judging that. Are we working as hard as we can and, and are our players acting the right way? Um, and then I think beyond that, a really nice thing that starts to happen uh, when you've been somewhere a couple of years is that some older players start to teach the younger players. Yeah. And I think that's a really good sign that people are buying into to the, the culture that you're trying to create and, uh, and starting to really understand it. And then it, it starts to kind of build exponentially if you can, if you can do that. Right. Um, and so, you know, we, we try to encourage our, our, upperclassmen to um uh teach our underclassmen our uh our defensive concepts you know some of our offensive concepts and our cutting uh so that they're i I think when you teach something first of all you learn it better because you have to uh start thinking about it start thinking about okay yeah how do i do this why do i do it this way um and then i think for the for the underclassmen that you know to get that teaching from from players that are actually doing that is, is a huge thing so i think when you start to see that, you you know you're you know you're building something. Gotcha. So after five seasons at, at Clarkson, you become the head coach at RPI in the summer of 2014. Just for the listeners who, who don't know, Clarkson and RPI are in the same conference, which is the Liberty League. What is the process like of taking over the program of a former conference rival? Yeah, so it was it was hard to leave Clarkson. 
uh, you know, I, I, I loved it there. I loved the, the people there, the people that I worked for and, and the student athletes that I worked with. Um, but I thought the opportunity at RPI was was a great one. And uh, and I haven't been wrong about that. It's, mm-hmm. it's an awesome school and uh, we have unbelievable facilities. Uh, I work for, for great people at RPI and we have, you know, fantastic student athletes. So it's uh, it's a really fun place to work. Um, when I first took over, it was it was really the games against Clarkson were hard. Yeah. Um, and uh, and you felt you could, you could feel some emotion because of the student athletes, really not not for not for any other reason. Just some of the student athletes that I had that I had worked with. It was certainly hard to, to coach against them. Right. Um, you know, now all those student athletes have graduated. Gotcha. So that's uh, that, that's kind of changed over and that's not as big a deal as it was when i when i first took over gotcha. but rpi has been awesome so it's uh mike griffin who was the, the longtime coach at rpi before me was great in terms we had a nice relationship anyway from from coaching against each other and we always we always talk to each other and so uh he was awesome in terms of introducing me to alumni and, and people on campus and uh, people in the community and, and, and just really helping to, to bridge that gap and help me uh, get started with some of those relationships right away. And so, uh, you know, I think that made a big difference. And, um, and our program has, has been able to really keep getting better each year and really, really take off this, this past year. So it's, yeah. it's been a lot of fun. Now, correct me if, if, if I'm wrong, Coach, and this is probably just because I'm just clouded by the kids who I went to high school with who are interested in RPI for their college choice, was that RPI is primarily an engineering school. Does that make recruiting a little more difficult as not only do you have to find players who are good enough to play at, at the school, students who can get into the school, but also uh, student athletes who have that academic area of interest? Yeah, so I would say we're more of a of a science math school. Okay, engineering traditionally has has been one of our you know strongest programs and one of the ones we're known for. But uh, you know, about half of our students are engineers on our team, and the other gotcha. half are, are business majors. Okay, um, so we also do have a great school of science, a great school of humanities, great school of architecture. So um, those are the five schools: engineering, business, uh, humanities, science, and architecture. And uh, they're all really strong programs. We are a technologically based school, so mm-hmm. it is different than like a liberal arts college, you know. So it's it, it's just got a different it's got a different feel. Right. Um, so you you're gonna attract student athletes that want that feel. Gotcha. Um, and uh, but I always look at it, you know, whether you're um, whatever you're whether you're, you're more of a, a business oriented person or or an engineering person that. Um, you know, the world keeps getting more technological. Right. And so, uh, you know, I think that there's something there that uh, that a lot of people are really, really enjoy and really like. And the field of engineering has grown. Um, mm-hmm. You know, when I was coming out of high school, if someone said engineering, I would have thought I was driving a train. <laughs> um, but, uh, but now I will I'll go to a tournament and, and, and watch a bunch of players and uh, it'd be like, oh, you know, I really I really like the way that person plays and that person plays. And I'll, I'll cold call people and just see sort of know how they're how they are academically and what they might be interested in and yeah, there's a lot of people that i'm calling at random that are saying oh, I, I really am interested in engineering or i'm interested in something stem related something right. in science and math and uh you know way more so than there ever used to be gotcha. and so that's uh it, it's kind of a nice it, it's a it, it's a hot field to be in right now i would say cool cool yeah i, I think definitely especially like the software and engineering type 
type things are really popular uh, right now, too. Yeah, exactly. So the 2019-2020 season was arguably the best in, in RPI history. You guys ended up going 24-5, and finished the year 17-1 and in conference play. But you guys started 0-2 before you rattled off 18 wins in a row, including two wins over Hobart College, who ended up advancing all the way to the Sweet 16. How did you guys turn it around in such a dramatic way after dropping the first two games of the season? Yeah, the coach got out of the way. I think <laughs> um, <laughs> the uh, you know we, we knew we could we could have a good year. We thought, but um, we had graduated uh, some some key players the year before, seniors that um, we had two uh, thousand point scorers that had had graduated from our from the team the year before, uh, and very three starters. Um, so it was uh, we had some some things we needed to to figure out, and uh, who was going to play what role and how exactly we were going to play and so um you know i think it maybe took us a couple games to do that that first tournament there were good teams too yeah Uh, newark and westfield state both had had really good years westfield state ended up it was their tournament we played them in the consolation game of their tournament and they went on to make the ncaa tournament as well this year um so i think it was just kind of a good tournament too so uh we we finished those first two games and we're zero and two and obviously we're all kind of a little down about it um but looking back i think it was a great thing for us uh we, we sort of figured out some things we needed to do a little bit differently uh, offensively and defensively what we needed to really focus on and everybody got uh, razor sharp going into the next game and, and exactly how we needed to play to try to be successful and uh and then it was really just one game at a time it was weird we you know we lost those first two games and then we we played and we sort of stayed focused on hey let's just concentrate on these couple things offensively and these couple things defensively and, and everybody bought into that yeah and we did that and we won the next game and we and we kept doing that and we looked up and we had won 18 games in a row <laughs> and uh, and uh, you know but it, it we it was a great group and we had great senior leadership and um kevin davis and mitchell way and that yep. uh that helped us just really we didn't get too caught up in the wins and losses it was just hey let's stay focused each week on getting a little better when we get to the game like concentrate on 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 doing the things we want to do and uh and that that led us to be to have a really successful year yeah, and it was a huge success. You guys win the regular season Liberty League crown and advance to the conference championship game where you faced off against Ithaca College for the third time uh, that season. I only know this coach from a player's perspective, uh, going up some seasons against Amherst and, and Williams College three times, that it's a unique challenge where you feel like you're super comfortable with the personnel and their sets and stuff, but they always like to throw in a couple of wrinkles. So it's a balance of uh, staying on your toes for the new stuff, but also uh, fighting that type of, I don't want to say complacency, but just kind of like uh, comfortability with, with the other team. Just from a preparation standpoint, what is it like preparing for a third matchup against a, a team? Uh, and how does that kind of compare from the first and or, or second time you guys played them? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. And I will say, so we played two teams in the, in the conference tournament that we mm-hmm. had already played twice. Yeah. The first was union, which we, who we played on, on the first day so that, that we were getting ready for them kind of all week. And we played them on the Saturday. 
Um, so from a coaching standpoint, uh, that was the more difficult one preparation wise because we had all week to think about it. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, it was like, well, are they going to play this way again? Or, or, you know, are they going to switch the screen? Cause they, they did the first time, but they didn't the second time. And, and so you sort of almost drive yourself in, in circles uh, yeah. thinking about what, uh, and you don't want to overcomplicate it for the players and you've had success. So you want to just, you know, concentrate on what you want to do, but you also want to be ready for, for your opponent. Um, so that was probably, uh, from a preparation standpoint, uh, more difficult by the time we got to uh sunday we really only had you know that morning at our at our shoot around to prepare for ithaca gotcha. um and played them the third time we had two great games with them mm-hmm. uh, during the regular season you know we had won one we lost one yeah. they were both very close hard-fought games and and the third really was was the same story and, and we ended up losing in overtime um and uh you know i really ithaca is just they're a good team and it was, a, was a, there was a close battle and one that could have gone either way. And, um, so the challenge there really was more just, uh, getting ready to, to prepare that morning for, for a conference championship game and, and try to play our best. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and I thought we did a pretty good job of that. I think I just also did a good job of that. Yeah, for sure. So you guys, I don't want to bring many bad memories, but you guys end up dropping that game to Ithaca, but you earn an at-large bid to the NCAA tournament where you're placed in Tufts's pod uh, for for your first uh, round matchups where you faced off against New England College in the first round. For the listeners, uh, New England College has traditionally and, and plays a very aggressive defensive style with a lot of uh, full-court pressure and trapping and den- hard denials on the wings. As a coach getting ready to face a, a team like that who plays defense in that type of way, just what are some of the things that you guys did in practice uh, to get ready for for that type of defensive style? So, yeah, you're right. Uh, New England College, and you watch it on film, and and you're thinking, God, why are these teams having so much trouble with, with this pressure? Why are they getting the ball taken from them that way? And, and you don't really have a sense of it. Till you till you get out in the court, <laughs> um, and you're like, wow, they they they're really good at this. Uh, so uh, it was a it was interesting um, uh, contrast in styles where where we were, you know, we have forwards that we thought could score. Uh, Pat Mahoney had a had a great year for us and could, mm-hmm. and could score inside, and uh, Mason Memoir had a great year for us and can, and can score inside. And so we thought if we can handle the ball and get the ball inside to those players we have an advantage there right um but getting it there was was not always easy uh and so that's kind of how the game went it, you know when we were able to really take care of the ball and 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 move it and get the ball inside we scored um but sometimes we turned it over in the process of trying to do that right and uh so it was it sort of went back and forth that way and uh, uh you know we i thought we what we did a nice job of uh, was playing pretty good defense throughout that so yeah we, we, the score never got too far away from us um and uh you know we were led don black i was a defensive player in the year in, in our league and he's our point guard and he just uh, does a great job of um kind of 
just continuing to compete all the time. Yeah. And so even when the game's not going the way you hope, you don't let it get too far out of reach. Yeah. And so that's kind of what we did. And then, and we started to get going and started to adjust to their pressure as the game went along and, and have a little more success, you know, getting the ball inside and, and being able to score. And so it, it worked out well. And it was, it was just a fun March Madness game. To 100%. Win our, to win our first NCAA tournament game by a point and have that, have that feeling. And it, yeah. was, uh, it was a lot of fun. Yeah. I want to talk about the, uh, the, the game in, in one second coach but obviously at the same time you're getting ready for the NCAA tournament kind of the world started to have other plans for for all of us the first signs of the damage that the coronavirus uh couldn't end up doing here in the states though that we were starting to see those first signs and schools like Johns Hopkins and Tufts uh, sorry and Amherst had closed their gyms to fans for that weekend's NCAA tournament games just was 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 that a normal week of prep for you guys or was there you know talk about the virus starting to come at all and was there any uh considerations within the athletic department about uh extra precautions you guys would take that that weekend yeah there there was not a lot uh earlier and i just feel you know so fortunate that we got to have the the full experience Mm -hmm. um you know we we hosted our conference tournament the weekend before and that was the first time hosting it at at, uh, ecav which is our beautiful athletic facility and we had over a thousand fans in the stands and an unbelievable atmosphere a great student section we had a lot of alumni back it was it it couldn't have been more fun the atmosphere in the gym and i'm I'm just so grateful that we that we got that we got that whole experience and then we went to tufts and we got to play the you know play the two games and um, you know, we had a nice crowd for the New England College game, and then for the Tufts game, it was a sold-out crowd, and yeah, awesome. uh, and we, we got to have that whole experience that you don't always get in Division Three, right? Yep. That's why when you're having a great season and and you can get into uh, postseason play, you get to have some of those really those really fun experiences with the great crowds, and so our our players got to have that, which I'm so so grateful for because I know uh, you know some uh, right after that was yeah. to be the last weekend of college basketball <laughs> yeah for so, sure uh, so it was um it, you know it was it, it was a, it was a magical experience and, and I'm glad we we got to have it I can remember you know there wasn't a lot of talk going into our conference tournament the weekend before at all uh, yet about would coronavirus affect athletics on the drive to Tufts for that for that NCAA tournament weekend, there started to be talk of oh maybe some gyms weren't going to allow fans and and maybe there wouldn't be gatherings of of more than a certain amount of people and mm-hmm. uh, so it was sort of just beginning and we were all trying to figure out you know, how serious this was and how hard it was going to hit the United States and, and and what was going on and uh, and then the world just changed quickly right after yeah. that um, so yeah that that's that's kind of how it happened. So back to the the action on the court. The game against New England College was absolutely thrilling, but you guys fell behind by 16 points in in the second half. And with about 11 minutes to go, you call a timeout after the guys had cut the lead down to 14. What do you remember saying to your guys to help turn the tide of the game? You know, nothing, nothing major. I, I think really, I. I I just wanted them to relax. I thought that um, we were, you know, you start to feel the the the, ter- the, pre- the, the pressure from New England College, which was which was intense defensive pressure, but also the pressure of a single elimination tournament. Mm-hmm. And you know, you're oh, like we're not playing well enough, and we want to win, and we want the tournament to keep going. So uh, just 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 to relax and to continue to try to get the ball inside where I thought we had an, an advantage, and then. Um, it, 
uh, like I said, I thought Don Black played well. Johnny yeah. Ngbazo was a freshman on our team that um, came off the bench and, and had, a, had a great second half for us and um, did a lot of nice things that sort of helped our team get going and helped us start to get a little more confident. And we continued to get stops after that defensively. Yep. And so uh, that kept giving us a chance. If we could keep getting stops, the score didn't get too far away. Uh, then we can sort of figure this thing out on offense and, and, and start to turn the ball over a little less and, and, and score a little more. And it turned out to be just enough. So it was, uh, uh, yeah, it was a, it was a fun, a fun game, but no, I don't think I said anything special in that, uh, that timeout. <laughs> um, I think it was just a matter of everybody relaxing and, and kind of adjusting to new England college's pressure. Right. Um, and then realizing that we still had enough time to uh to play to play some really good basketball and give ourselves a chance to win yeah so it was a ferocious comeback back and forth about like it was a back and forth battle the last three minutes and the lead was cut down to one without about 40 seconds to go as you mentioned don black the literary league defense player of the year draws a charge to, to give you guys the ball back uh, i think it was like 40 ish seconds if, if i remember correctly a lot of TV announcers, primarily Jeff Van Gundy on the ESPN telecast, uh, applaud coaches who don't call timeouts in these situations and, and kind of let let the guys play. Is is that something you guys practice of, of hey, end of game situation, here's a set that, that we're going to run? We do. So we do have a end of game situation so that we don't necessarily need to call a timeout. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I think it's, all, it's always nice if you can – you know, not let the defense set. Right. And, uh, you know, so if you have the ball in a, in a sort of semi-transition situation where they've, they've scrambled back, maybe they don't quite have the matchups that they want to have. Um, maybe they don't have, the other team doesn't quite have the personnel in that they want to have. Whatever the situation is, they don't have a completely set defense. So if you feel comfortable that you can set up something nice offensively without calling timeout, then I think that's a great thing. Um you know, I think also in the case of New England College, because their their defensive pressure is so great, I think the, uh, the less often you have to take the ball out of bounds, um, yeah. the better. <laughs> uh, so, um, you know, I think b- both those things kind of, uh, I think, lead to lead to those situations. So after a missed three-pointer, you guys get the ball back on a battle for the offensive rebound where it was a jump ball. You guys have a baseline out-of-bounds set and a beautiful pass uh, for a layup right by the defender's basically left ear that the guy uh, caught, finished, and you guys have have the lead. And as soon as the ball goes, goes to the net coach, you fiercely and with great physical explosion sprint to the ref on your side of the court, trying as hard as you can to, to call a timeout, and the ref do- doesn't give it to you. As a, as a coach, what is the strategy behind calling a timeout in, in that si- situation when you have the lead and, and you know, you're trying to s- set up your, your defense? Yes. So, you know, just, so just the opposite of what I just said, right? Yeah. So if you, if, you, if you believe that your team has a little bit of an advantage by not calling a timeout offensively, then it would make sense that you believe your team would gain a little bit of advantage by calling a timeout defensively. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's sort, of the, that's sort of the thought process there is, okay, we just scored. I don't want them to be able to now score quickly before we're set or kind of have a matchup that we don't like or whatever. If we can get a timeout here, um, then let's then, then we can make sure we have the right personnel and and, and the right defensive um, mindset going into the possession and strategy and all that. 
uh, obviously I didn't do a good enough job of communicating <laughs> that to the official. <laughs> it's tough. But, it's, um, it's, it's loud, a, a lot going on, but yeah. Yeah. But, and, 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 and the officials have a lot going on, right? Yes. So they don't always, they don't always hear it. And, um, but yeah, it, you know, as, as it turned out, New England college ended up calling timeout anyway. Yep. Um, and so it allowed us to do what we wanted to do, you know, defensively and, and try to, you know, hopefully give ourselves our best shot there. Um, yeah, going into that last possession. Yeah, I, I always thought of thought of this as as like a lose lose situation for the coaches because it was basically what, whatever happens in the play where if you guys end up winning, it was always a great decision by the coach to call a timeout <laughs> because because my college coach, coach coach Joe Riley, you know, I, I I think he was swayed to always do the same thing of call a timeout when you have the lead towards the end because Williams College. Uh, when Duncan Robson was there in the national championship, scored, took the lead, and I think it was Wisconsin Whitewater, uh, came down and scored a layup in, in transition. And the idea of like, okay, if we call a timeout, we could set up our defense, we'll get transition in that way. But also, if, if they got a stop, it was, oh, that was a great decision not to call a timeout and let Whitewater set up a full court, you know, Christian Leitner type baseball pass play. So I always think that the coach always, you know, he has a has a tough job with that because it's, it's always just as long as the the outcome is right, you guys get praised, and if the outcome doesn't go that way, you guys get criticized for doing what you did instead of the the opposite. Yeah, that that you're you're, you're exactly right about that. And, yeah, and there's no right answer to these things, mm-hmm. right? Like it's um, I think it depends what you're comfortable with and, and what you're used to doing, and, and right. maybe what you know what you've what you've practiced, um, and so. Uh, you know, for New England College plays small, mm-hmm. so it, we had uh, Mason Memelar was the forward who scored that last basket for yeah. us to take the lead, and he was a tough matchup for New England College at that end of the court because he was a little bigger and stronger than than some of their players, and if we could get it to him, he could score down there. But it was also a tough matchup for him defensively at the other end. Yeah. Um, so for us, you know, the, the 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 timeout made sense for me. Like I. I wanted the timeout because if we could sub him out now we could have a, a smaller quicker defensive team on the court that could match up a little bit better mm-hmm. um so to me it's always like if your logic is sound yeah. you have to live with the result gotcha <laughs> <laughs> and uh and you know you're gonna get criticized if it doesn't work out yeah but uh but hopefully if, if if you if you feel good about you know what what your what your reasoning behind your decision is then then the, then the result is the result that's part of coaching for uh, sure so uh but, uh, you know, I think when you get mad at yourself is when you think, God, why did I do that? that yeah. make, that's outside of what I would normally do or it doesn't make sense. Or, you know, um, you know, that's when you that's when you're up all night beating yourself up. After <laughs> For sure. And, and you know, the, the results went your guys way. New England College final shot falls short and you guys go on to win the game, advancing to play Tufts in, in the second round. Tufts won the was the winners of, of the NESCAC this past season and they presented a, a tough challenge for really any opposing team as that it only had a ton of skilled guards led primarily by uh, senior Eric Savage. They also had the 2019-2020 Commerce Player of the Year who was in Luke Rogers, who was kind of a throwback, uh, really great interior post-score and and, and post-presence. What is it kind of like to prepare for a team as talented and multidimensional as Tufts is with less than 24 hours to, to, to do it? Yeah, you know, not easy. Um, and and two, you know, very different teams, right? So yeah. um, Charlie Mason at New England College is, is a great coach, and New England College runs a, a great system. 
very different in terms of, of style and style of defense and, and what they're looking for. And now we you turn around and play toughs and it's almost, almost the, an opposite type of game. Um, and, uh, and coach Feldon's a really, really good coach. And, uh, uh, and you know, the players you mentioned are, are very good. So it's, so it's hard, but we've done that all year. Yeah. We've, we've played back to back games all season long. So I think, that's nice that our conference schedule really helps us get ready for a tournament type situation where, um, you know, we, our conference games, we play Friday nights and Saturday afternoons. And so you're getting ready for, for good teams and good coaches on Saturday afternoon. And you really only have that morning to, to prepare and talk about, you know, what you want to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and, and Tufts is in the same boat. They yeah. only had the morning to prepare for us. Yep. And, and uh, so, and then that, you get ready as best you can. Um, you know, I think the harder part about Tufts wasn't necessarily um, that we only had the morning prepare. I think it was just that they were a really good team. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, they, you know, they had, as you mentioned, Luke Rogers could really score inside. So yeah. you had to you have to help and figure out how you're going to try to limit his opportunities. But they have a number of players that can shoot very well from the perimeter. So as you do that, you to what degree do you end up giving up those three point shots and, um, and can you make them take three point shots that they're likely to miss or do they get, you know, more open ones where they're likely to make it. And so, uh, that's kind of the the key to, to figuring out how to, how to guard those guys and, and give yourself a shot. So in a hard fought game in front of a, just an incredible atmosphere, uh, you guys fall short and end the season 24 and five, obviously the, the global pandemic has kind of forced every program in the country to kind of adjust the, the spring and summer plans, but just some, what, what are some of the types of things that you guys are trying to do at RPI to, to stay connected with the guys on the team and, and to try to make next season even better than this past one? Yeah. You know, awesome question. So, um, like I said, feel fortunate that we were able to get our full season in and, and have that whole experience. Um, and, uh, and then things changed really quickly right after that. And, uh, sports ended and then shortly after that school ended yeah um and so uh but our, our student athletes of all we've we've had several uh, zoom meetings and uh that that's been kind of fun and then i i call the guys uh, once every other week basically and just gotcha. uh, talk through how's it going with school um and you know how are things at home and, and uh one thing that's been nice is all our guys did really well academically um this this semester and so the uh the adjustment to the online courses and the format um didn't seem to uh didn't seem to hurt them yeah um, and uh and obviously people have a lot of time at home so <laughs> they have a, a chance to uh to do well academically and i thought our, our players really took advantage of that so i was happy about that and, and, and proud of that um and uh in talking to them they you know their their spirits are up you know i, I was i say this is a moment where it's harder to practice yeah but the people that do and that are more a little more creative about it and a little more disciplined about it will um, will will be better mm-hmm. and better prepared than the people who don't. And so you know, be let's be a team that that uh, that does that a little more than maybe some other teams. Yeah. And so uh, I think we've got you know some really dedicated student athletes. So you know, I think they're they're going on runs. They're doing you know, more body weight lifting where they're trying to get stronger. You know, without necessarily going somewhere where you have weights. Most of them have hoops in their driveway, so they're able okay. to uh, to get out and get yeah. some shots. Especially now that the weather's getting nicer, mm-hmm. which is a big thing. Harder for um, you know, we've got uh, one student athlete in particular. Um, 
that uh, you know, lives in New York City, doesn't have a hoop in his driveway, so yeah. it's a you know, tough situation for him where they've, they've taken the hoops off the uh, the parks, know, off, yeah, off the backboards in the in the parks, and they're really not allowing people to shoot. So that part's harder. Um, but in general, you know, I think I think our guys are are, are working fairly hard so that they're ready. Um, and they, uh, you know, I'm sure as you are, as I am, they're looking forward to just a time when they can be around people again, and they can yeah. be around other other college kids, and they can play basketball again. Uh, yeah, they, that's what they love doing. Yeah, for sure. And I and I think that the creativity part of it is going to be huge because you know it's just the the human element of it's really hard to practice or do anything just by yourself and motivate yourself for a really long period of time, and. And it's actually great to hear that a lot of you guys have hoops and drivers because one of the craziest things about reading about all the stuff going on with the pandemics is how many NBA players don't have or did not have a basketball hoop that that they could go shoot at. Like there's a great Wall Street Journal article where Steph Curry basically went on Amazon or Spalding or whatever and ordered a hoop for his driveway. And while his wife took care of his kids, he literally sat in his driveway and put it together for six hours. Awesome. <laughs> uh, so, so coach, as, as we approach the end here, I, I, I want to ask you something that is rather unique about you because you come from just an incredibly successful sports family. Obviously, as, as we've mentioned, your dad, Tim is the longtime and very successful coach at Bowdoin college, but your uncle Kevin has also a pretty successful coach in his own right in, in the world of football as he's won two Super Bowls. With, as an offensive coordinator with my favorite team, the New York Giants. And during his, his first full year, the Giants won Super Bowl Forty Two, which honestly is still one of the best days of, of my young life, uh, where they defeated the previously undefeated <laughs> 18-0 Patriots. Can, can you just give us a quick story about that season and what it was like watching your uncle complete perhaps the greatest sports upset of all time? It was a lot of fun. Yeah, I've always... Um I've been a fan of of my my uncle Kevin's teams wherever they are. Um, he you know he he, he was at several different places throughout his career, and yep. you know I always rooted for his team. And it was fun when he was with the Giants. I was actually an assistant coach at Stonehill College, um, which is close to Boston. Yep. Um, while that uh, during that season and during that Super Bowl, and so I was surrounded by Patriots fans everywhere. <laughs> Um, and, uh, my sisters and I, uh, what they were both in, in Massachusetts too. And we, uh, watched, uh, that Super Bowl game together, uh, in my, uh, living room apartment, apartment living room. And, uh, we, we went nuts and I think we're the only three people in the state uh, going <laughs> crazy. Um, but it was, uh, that was a lot of fun. That was an unbelievable Super Bowl. Uh, and it was, uh, really fun to watch. Has has he even jokingly t- taking credit that that the helmet catch was just a genius play play design that <laughs> that he had or well or, it's something they work on every day in practice David. yeah <laughs> but, uh, you're, you're ready when that moment comes to catch the ball in the helmet well one hundred percent so <laughs> so coach the last question here before we before, before we get to the end and some f- super fun ones is that you know the game of basketball has evolved over the last ten years. And mainly with the evolution of the three-point shot and something I really enjoyed the last six weeks, and I'm sure you have too, and the guys on your team has, is ESPN aired the 10-part Michael Jordan documentary, The Last Dance. And people, especially people of my generation, were kind of reminded of really what basketball was like in the 80s and 90s. So just in in your opinion, as this debate has been raging on the talking head shows and, and on the internet about saying that 80s basketball is the best, 90 basketball is the best, this generation's basketball is the best, 
is do do you think the, the the game of basketball is better or worse today than than it was in the 1990s? Ooh, what a tough question. Uh, I will say that I think the three point shooting is better today than ever before. Yeah. And so, and that changes the game, right? Now, some some of what changes the game is the way the officials call the hand checks. So mm. that's uh, that's part of it, and I think that's where you get into. Uh, you know, players from that from the 80s and 90s saying, hey, we, you know, we had to be able to play through contact more at the start of a drive uh, and then still be able to make a play. Um, and so that is is something that's impressive from that time. Um, but the other reason they had to play through contact more and there was more help was there, there were fewer great three point shooters on the court. Yeah. And so teams were able to pack the lane more. Um, and that's what when you watch uh, when you watch Michael Jordan, what's so unbelievable is that you know, there's two or three people in the lane, right. including his own man, and he's able to drive and jump and twist in between them and yeah. score and make it look easy, and uh, and it's unbelievable. And so you see a wide array of shots and, and sort of um, uh, those mid to short range shots that uh, I'm not sure people take as much even now, mm-hmm. um, but uh, but that he was just unbelievable at, and, and they're a lot of fun to watch. Um, and so I think. While maybe some of that has been lost, um, the the three point shooting has definitely improved, yep. and so now you have more space, so you don't have to be quite as good when you're in the lane yeah. as he was, because when you get in there, the the decision is more obvious. There's somebody helping uh, that I kick it to this great three point shooter. Okay, there's nobody helping, then there's not then I, it's an easier finish, um, and so yeah, I think it's just different. Uh, but I, I do love the. I do love all the arguments, and I love the, the ten part series. It <laughs> yeah. was so much fun to watch. I thought the, uh, you know, the stories were great. The, the highlights were unbelievable, and I thought the music was really good. It yeah, did the, a really nice job of putting it together. Yeah, the the music I thought was one of the the best things, and and I personally find you know in movies or TV shows or documentaries the the music sets sets the tone. So when it's especially when there was the 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 clip of what he's talking about his teammates and he gets choked up and they have that whole montage and the music is just incredible. It, it just elevates everything to, to a whole new level, which, which I thought was awesome. And Jason Hire, a Williams guy played baseball there, deserves all the credit uh, for just an awesome documentary. Yeah. That's awesome. Oh, I didn't realize it until Williams. That's cool. Yeah. So, so coach, I appreciate all the time as if we get to the end here. I have five rapid fire questions uh, to end the podcast. Okay. What is your favorite drill as a coach? So we do a lot of competitive drills. Our guys like this sort of uh, competitive defensive shell game where uh, there's 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 three teams and you get points a point for every stop. Gotcha. And uh, you stay on if you, you stay on if you win a point. And so uh, I think that's our team's favorite drill, and it's, it's probably mine as well. Do you have any pregame superstitions? Um, hmm. Not not really. Um, I, you know, I do always try to find uh, my, my wife, Amanda, in the stands and uh-huh. give her a little wave. Um, she's at most of the games. And uh, so that's a, that always relaxes me. Um, but uh, other than that, not, not, not really. Who is the best player you have ever coached against? The best player I have ever coached against? Um, hmm. That's a tough one. The, uh, you know, I think... Skidmore's had some had some great players, and uh, Alden and Madunin is uh, was a was a pretty uh, special player at Skidmore in the Liberty League. If you could change one rule about college basketball, what would it be? Um, 
one rule about college basketball. I actually don't like the new flopping rule that they've that they put in. Okay. I think you're I think you're asking officials. It was hard to judge, and now you're asking them to make one more judgment. Right. Um, so I I I I don't like that rule, or at least I would change it that it was only. You can only do it with replay. It's not something that you have to try to, to call live. Gotcha. And as my last question, just, just in your view, what is the most unique thing about coaching Division three athletes? I just what – I, what I love about it is that they're doing it because they love it. And, you know, I, I coached at all three levels. And in Division one and two, you can kind of force a player to work harder in the offseason, mm-hmm. even if you have a lazier player. Because you have mandatory workouts, mandatory strength sessions, skill sessions, all that stuff. Division three, we don't have that. It's all voluntary. Uh, but if you get the right group of people, now you have a, a group that's working as hard as Division one players, but because they want to, because they want to be great, because they love it. And I, I right. think that makes it, if you can get that, it makes it an unbelievable atmosphere to be around. So, Coach, I really appreciate all the time. And, and as always, on the Double Double, we give the last word to our guests. So do you have anything you want to say to the great people of Troy, New York? Uh, stay, stay healthy. Stay safe. We're uh, looking forward to hopefully being back in school again. And we're looking forward to uh, big crowds in ECAV again for another great basketball season. All right, Coach. Th- thanks so much. Yeah, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. That'll do it for this episode of The Double Double. If you like this podcast, you can find us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can subscribe, rate, and review. Five stars would be much, much appreciated. And you can follow us on Twitter at DBL underscore DBL podcast. We'll be back later this week. Until then, take care and make it a great day.